and don't be concerned. I know, I know I'm trying to limit this to an hour, but I got all this stuff up here. <coughs> I, I look like Gloria Copeland or uh, Daisy Osborne. She used to do the same thing. But I wanted to, you can be seated. I wanted to share something with you um, tonight. And, and I appreciate that Pastor um, Philip and Michelle invite me to come and do these Sunday evening sessions. And um, I remember something Brother Summerall said to me years ago. He said, I preach out of the overflow. I preach out of all the years that I spent studying and all the years that I wrote books and took notes and so forth. And, uh, and I, I kind of feel like that's what I'm doing now. Next year, Jeannie and I will have been in ministry 50 years. And you, you, can, you can write a lot of notes and learn a lot of stuff in 50 years. And uh, I've chosen to teach you about ownership. It was a major revelation in my life in uh, 1999, I think that's right. Yeah, 1999. And this is the, I have, this is one volume out of 10. And I think Michelle helped me put some of this together. But I wanted all the sermons and all the messages that I've taught over the years, easy access. And so I have 10 volumes of these with all of the, not all of the messages, but some of them, the most important ones, um, uh, over the years. In Proverbs chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me now, if you were here last month, uh, you'll know that we read this as our, our um, scripture text. Proverbs 6, Solomon is basically dealing with... Um, Morality. He's dealing with warnings. And in Proverbs 6, verse 30, he said, Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. <clears throat> now out of that, in the Word of Faith camp, we have... Um, come up with a, a formula and it's, you know, pretty well substantiated by Scripture, but it, they use this, this verse. And if you catch a thief, referring to the devil, make him pay back, and he steals from you, make him pay back seven times what he's stolen. But one morning, March of 1999, I woke up first thing in the morning, and like uh, the Holy Spirit does a lot of times, he'll speak to me when I first wake up. And he just said to me, it's not about running after the devil to get back what he's stolen. It's about ownership. I thought about it, and I thought about it. I medit on, meditated on it for days and weeks. And I thought I, I thought I taught a lesson on ownership probably for a year in the church. All kinds of references to ownership. He said it's not about running after the devil to get back what he's stolen. That's the defensive. He said, it's about ownership. It's about who owns the earth. It's about who is in control. It's about who has dominion. And out of that, I began to get an understanding 
And I had a lot of colleagues that would differ with me, disagree with me. And they would say things like, we don't own anything. We're not owners. We're stewards. And we didn't argue about it, but we were different in our theology and our feelings about it. Uh, one particular guy that challenged me with it, and I just said, I said, is that your coat there you got on? He said, yes. I said, well, then do you own it? Well, yes. Well, then you do own something. You are an owner. And the opposite of ownership is stewardship, which means we don't own anything. Nothing belongs to us. It all belongs to God, and we're just stewards. Well, it all comes from God. Everything is created by God, which you can plainly see in the Scriptures that He gave it to the children of men. One particular friend of mine said that he flew his airplane into an airport, and one of his critics <laughs> caught him there on the tarmac and said, uh, how does it feel to fly around in God's airplane? He said, I don't know. I've never been in God's airplane. Well, isn't that God's airplane? He said, no, that's mine. He said, God travels at 186,000 miles a second. He don't need an airplane. You know, you might think it's semantics or, uh, you know, divisiveness, but there is something to be said about the knowledge of the truth. Jesus said that. You shall know the truth. And the knowledge of the truth shall make you free. Let's all say that. The knowledge of the truth will make you free. Now, just kind of as an appetizer before we get into the material tonight. Um, I ran across this little book. Now, I took the paper cover off so you can't see it. I ran across this in a bookstore several years ago. It's called How to Kill 11 Million People. And you might think, well, what attracted you to that, Pastor? I mean, how to kill 11 million people? And it says as a subtitle, the truth matters more than you think. If you don't believe right, you can't live right. Amen. If you believe a lie, then you're not going to have the knowledge of the truth and you're not going to be able to walk in the truth. Now, the teaching that if you catch the thief, you make him pay back seven times. You can certainly do that. You have the authority to do that. But what the Lord said to me is that's not what it's about. Right. It's not about you always being on the defensive. Mm -hmm. It's about you being on the offensive. It's about you carrying out your assignment, doing your work, doing what God's called you to do, raising your family, your children, uh, your job. It's about being on the offensive. In a church company like this, I'm, I'm this stool is comforting and I know I asked for it but it's it's getting away with me so I'm going to stand up and rather than feel like I'm doing exercises or something but in a church company like this you you have to know what your assignment is and what your vision is or you can't fulfill it and let me just say this, and I'm not saying this for the pastor's benefit. He hadn't asked me to say this. But if you don't buy into this vision, if you don't take ownership of this house vision, it'll never come to pass, and you're going to be, you're going to be rewarded according to what you did in the body. Now, you might not like everything the pastors say, everything they do. 
I had a lady in our church. We pastored the same church for 35 years. You guys have been a part of it a long, long time. And there was a lady in our church. I tell you, I couldn't do anything right. I mean, she wrote me notes. and There was no email back in those wrote me notes and she would stop me in the foyer and she would tell me everything I did wrong and blah 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 and what she's going to do and what she wasn't going to do. She would sit in the congregation and read a paperback dime novel while I was preaching. I mean I could see the cover of it, some romance book and she wasn't even paying attention to what I was teaching. She was just reading that book. And when she died her daughter called and said she wanted me to do her funeral. I thought, man, what an opportunity. <laughs> but I was nice about it. Okay, when I started reading this book, and I met the author later. He was one of our guest speakers for our first conference down in Florida. Uh, I serve on the Board of Governors of National Association of Christian Lawmakers. These are legislators all over the United States. And we have 23 chairpersons. These are senators, congressmen. Uh, they represent 23 of the 50 states in America, and they're all Christians, and they were all looking for some kind of fellowship with other Christian lawmakers because they take a lot of abuse in the legislature. And Senator Jason Rapert felt the same thing, and he met most of them, so he started uh, NACL, National Association of Christian Lawmakers. And we had our first conference down in Florida. Governor Huckabee was a speaker. Different ones were speakers. And he invited Andy Andrews to be one of our speakers. Now, Andy's the one that wrote this book. He's a funny guy. Uh, he said he was writing the book, and he had the manuscript in his briefcase, and he was going through the airport, and they wanted to search his briefcase, and so he opened it up, and out fell his, <laughs> his notes on how to kill 11 million people, and they arrested him <laughs> until they realized that he was legitimately, you know, writing a book. It's about the Holocaust. It's about the uh, 11 million people uh, that Hitler, actually he wanted to kill 11 million, but he only killed 6 million. Because if you know anything about his book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, you'll know that the problem that he faced, and it's called the final solution. He could not come up with a strategy to kill people fast enough and to dispose of their bodies. But here's how... Um, I think uh, he, he says it this way. He said it's not, it's not so much that how did he kill 11 million people, but he said it's how 11 million people or 6 million people allowed themselves to be killed. And it's what he did. He said you have to understand how 11 million people allowed themselves to be killed. Month after month, year after year, how did millions of intelligent human beings guarded by a few Nazi soldiers willingly load their families into tens of thousands of cattle cars to be transported by rail into one of the many death camps across Europe? The answer to the question, how do you kill 11 million people? You lie to them. Now, we are lied to all the time, every day, 24 hours a day. Television, media, social media, politicians, I mean, you name it, just go down the list. And it's not my intent to single out any particular person or any particular lie, but you have to know the truth. Yeah. Amen. Uh, and 
The first thing that Hitler told his henchmen, actually Adolf Eichmann was his head henchman. And uh, these are the sworn affidavit words that he spoke to the Jewish settlers. He said, Jews, at last it can be reported to you that the Russians are advancing on our eastern front. I apologize for the hasty way that we have taken you under protection. Unfortunately, there was little time to explain. You have nothing to worry about. We only want the best for you. You will leave here shortly and be sent to very fine places. You will work there. Your wives will stay at home. Your children will go to school. You will have lives. We will all be terribly crowded on the trains, but the journey is short. Men, please keep your families together and board the rail cars in an orderly manner. Quickly now, my friends, we must hurry. Now, this was Adolf Eichmann. He was the head henchman of the Hitler Nazis. And he, he, he is speaking kindly to all these people uh, that he wants to, to kill. And what Hitler said in his um, Mein Kampf or My Struggle, he said, Men do not think. So make the lie big. Make it simple and keep saying it. Repetition over and over and over. And eventually they will believe it. So make it big, not little. Keep it simple and they will eventually believe it. In Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, quote, the great masses of the people will more easily fall victim to a big lie than a small one. Hmm. Mothers and fathers held their voices, covered their eyes, closed their ears. The vast majority of an educated population accepted their salaries and avoided the uncomfortable truth that lingered over them like a serpent waiting to strike. And when the Nazis came for their children, it was too late. So the knowledge of the truth, Jesus had it right. Of course he did. The knowledge of the truth is what makes you free. Free from lies, free from anxiety, fear, worry, fear from torment, free from error. Now let's go to uh, Psalm 24 and I want to read you the... And I realize some of this is probably repetitious. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 24 is what most of my friends that disagree with me uh, quote. Psalm 24 and uh, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So the earth belongs to the Lord. My grandson, bless his heart, he sent me a, he lives in Nashville, he sent me a, a, I guess a contact and a reference and everything. He had gotten into this flat earth theory. And he was telling me, granddaddy, he said, they've lied to us. Who's lied to us? NASA, scientists, everybody's lied to us. The world is not round. It's flat. 
And he quoted some guy that I'd never heard of before, and he quote he, they used scripture to prove it. When it talks about the four corners of the earth. So see there, it's not round, it's flat. It's got four corners. And I could not convince, I didn't want to argue with my grandson because we were trying to get him more into the kingdom and not out. But I sent him to uh, Dr. Carl Ball's website down in uh, Glen Rose, Texas, the Creation Evidence Science Museum. And he deals with all of, the, all of that. So I sent him to his website. I, I don't know. Uh, what became, I, I do know what became of my grandson, but I don't know whether he changed his philosophy about the world. But he was believing a lie. And go over to Psalm 115, 16, and it uh, begins to correct itself. Psalm 115, 16. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Would you read that out loud? The earth hath he given to the sons of men. All right, now go over to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, the creation. Look at verse 26. God said, let's make man in our image after our likeness. And that does not, it, that does not refer to man being God incarnate. Now this is, we're talking about... Ownership, we're talking about the truth. But I've heard it taught that when God made Adam, He made him incarnate, God incarnate. Adam was not God incarnate. There's only one man that's incarnate, and that's Jesus. But there are cults that teach that Adam was God. It didn't say that. It said that He made him in His image and likeness, spirit being. He made man a spirit being. He didn't make him incarnate. He wasn't God in the flesh. Jesus is the only God in the flesh that the Bible refers to. So he made him spirit being. Why? So he could fellowship with him. So he could operate spiritual law. Then he gave him dominion. The word dominion means control, authority, ownership. You could use all the derivatives. He gave him dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle, the earth, everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, male and female created them. And God blessed them. Say, so God blessed them. And said, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and what? Subdue it. Take control over it. Take authority over it. Take ownership of what I've given you. Now we're going to read other scriptures that substantiate this. Uh, verse 29, God said, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth. It simply means seeding seed. I've given you everything that you will need in the last part of that verse 29. To you it shall be for meat or for plenty. So here God is establishing a pattern. He has given us ownership over the creation. Uh, Go to Psalm 8, Psalm chapter 8 and verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. Ownership is, here's, here's what I wrote, and I've been trying to get this book published. Michelle has helped me a little bit, but I sent the manuscript to a publisher. Ooh, 
20 years ago, I guess. And they sent it back and said, we don't understand this. Ownership, subtitle, the law of empowerment. The revelation of ownership empowers you. It empowers you to exercise the authority that God uh, gave you. Uh, let's go back to, um, let's see, I was flipping through this this afternoon, and I, let's go back to Numbers 13. Because you, you, you can't very well exercise your faith and your authority if you have no foundation for it, if you have no Bible for it. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan. Now listen to this. Which I give unto the children of Israel. God gave them the land. And you will see other language that says, Go up and possess the land, for I have given it to you. So God created the land. I mean, He's the creator of everything, the originator of everything. But what did He do? He gave it to His men. Well, when God gives you something, it's yours. Amen. And He expects you to take ownership of it. Jeannie and I have been to Israel many, many times, but the last time we were there was in 2018 with Pastor John and Diana Hagee. We were there for the dedication of the U.S. Embassy in uh, Jerusalem. They moved it from Tel Aviv to, we had received an invitation from um, the ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, and Pastor Hagee gave the uh, invocation, and we sat there and, and listened to all the speakers and Prime Minister Netanyahu and so forth. And you hear everything that's going on in Israel. There are signs all over downtown Jerusalem that said, Trump, make Israel great. <laughs> make Israel great. And they named the street going to the embassy Trump Avenue. I mean, this was unprecedented. Over 70 years, the, the Congress had voted to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel, but nobody had the guts to do it. Like him or not like him, at least Trump had guts. And he, he stepped on his tongue a lot of times and got in trouble and created all kinds of situations. But he had the guts to do something. And one time we were in D.C. at a... CUFI conference, and Pastor Hagee called me and said, uh, pray for us. Uh, President Trump has invited us to the White House for dinner tonight. And the rest of us had already gone home. And so I said, okay, we will. That night, late, he called, and he said, I said, well, what did the president want? He said, he wanted to know what I thought. If I move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, is it going to start a war? The Palestinians, etc." And, of course, there's only one Pastor Hagee. He said, Mr. President, he said, don't be concerned about that. Israel can take care of herself. And she certainly can. And all the argument. Now, we were there for three of the planning sessions that they were working on, the peace deal with Jason Greenblatt, Trump's attorney, and uh, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law. And we met the East Wing, the white, uh, West Wing of the White House. And it turned out to be what is known now as the Abraham Accord, but they were still diddly-daddling with and still are giving land for peace. That has never worked. It never will work. The Palestinians have, have either not gone to the table or walked away from the table. 
Every time there was a, a, a meeting, they do not want peace. They want Israel gone. They want them dead. They want it off the map. You do not negotiate with people that want to kill you. The land is not occupied by Israel. The land is owned by Israel. They own it. And they're going to defend it. I mean, he gave the land to them. You know why the spies that went up into Canaan to, to take the, the, the promised land? You know why Joshua and especially Caleb got so upset with the other spies that came back and the Bible says they gave an evil report? You know why it was evil? Because it was contrary to what God said. It was contrary to the Word. I think it was Caleb. Caleb was 85 when they came out and he came out and said, give me my mountain. 85, and he was going after another mountain. And he said, we are well able to possess it. Oh, but there's giants in the land. Doesn't matter. God gave it to us. So whatever God has given you, you have to take ownership of it. Satan will come and try to steal your healing, steal your wealth, steal your health, steal your peace. But it's all given to you in Christ Jesus. And you have to stand of what God has given you. Okay, now uh, let's, let's go on. I talked last time about the, uh, the servant mentality, uh, the ownership mentality. If you go to Acts chapter 5, and verse 4, we can flip over there. Uh, you'll see that these people did own things. I mean, Acts 5, um, uh, excuse me, Acts 4 and verse 33. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, for great grace was upon them all. Neither was any that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, brought the prices of things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according to his, as his need. This was not communal living. This was not socialism. These people that sold their houses and their property owned them. So if ownership is not biblical, then these people were out of line. They owned them. Verse 37 Having land, they sold it and bought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they got in trouble when they lied about what they sold the land for. In verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? Say that. Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And you have not lied unto men, but unto God. Remember in the early days of faith and confession, some of you remember this, some of you won't. Early days of faith and confession, there was a uh, revelation, and it's a, it's a biblically based revelation, but it kind of got off a little bit because people began to, you know, mess with it. Is it uh, and we got labeled as the name it and claim it bunch. Um, possession brings confession. Name it and claim it. And you know, people were claiming things that weren't theirs. They had no right to claim them and so forth. And um, I, I remember one time a guy came up to me and he liked my tie. So he, he just laid his hands on my tie and he said, I like that tie. He said, I just claim that in the name of Jesus. 
I said, get your hand off my tie. That's, that's, that's my tie. <laughs> now, you can go buy your own tie. Or if I advertise the tie for sale, or if I want to give it, then you can claim it. But you can't claim somebody else's property. There are people claiming other people's wives and claiming other people's houses and businesses and all kinds of goofy stuff. Because, you know, you, you can take the truth. The devil does this all the time. You can take the truth and run it to an extreme and get off into error. And that's what some people uh, did. Let me read you some of the notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through my, my comments and my notes here to just kind of show you what God had in mind. The garden that God planted east in Eden, He told Adam to dress it and to till it. He told him to keep it. He told him to take dominion to take ownership of it. And if Adam had done that, when the serpent came and tried to usurp authority and deceive Eve, Adam should have said, get out of this garden. In the name of the God of this garden, get out. But he didn't do that. You know, they tried to blame the woman for it. I know one time John Osteen was preaching a full gospel businessman convention. <laughs> and some lady smarted off to him and said, what would you do, Brother John, if it weren't for us women? Where would you be? He said, in the garden. <laughs> but Adam was standing right there with her. The Bible says that. It said he was right there with her. So the woman wasn't at fault. The Bible says she was deceived. But Adam willfully disobeyed God. So the garden was supposed to be taken authority over, owned by Adam. Listen to this. Now, this, these are my notes that I wrote in uh, this date here is April 18th, 1999. God created everything, but He gives us ownership privilege. The garden of God was God's will expressed to bless His creation. It brought Him joy. Hmm. Culture, divine and human. The expression garden of God signifies everything choice, inviting, peaceful, satisfying, and pleasurable. Every, temp every temptation refers back to the garden. Security. No more occasion of the thief who comes to steal or destroy. Freedom from all fear. Beauty. The garden is to be as beautiful as possible. Attractive, inviting. Creativity is produced, and it produced by its beauty. T.L. Osborne told us one thing one time. He said, beauty produces creativity. Surround yourself by beauty. It will cause you to be creative. Fruitfulness. Fruitful and reproductive for God. Variety. Not two or three kinds of flowering, tri flowering trees, but a multitude of flowers and fruit beyond your ability to imagine. Peace and happiness. Heavenly bliss. A resort of tranquility. The sweetest and purest satisfaction that earth can produce. Um, 
Jeannie and I have always enjoyed uh, Hawaii, and we've been over there probably 40 times or more. And I love the beauty. I love to be, you know, everybody else wants to, a room that's over the pool or blah, blah, blah. I, wanna, I, wanna, I don't want to mess with the pool. I want to see the ocean. And I like the peace and the quiet and, and the beauty and the palm trees and so forth. And we, we uh, found this one hotel, and it was just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just beautiful. And every morning I'd go out and walk and... I mean, uh, the hibiscus flowers are blooming and the, the garden is all perfectly manicured. The lawn is cut. The flower, there's, there's no dead leaves on the sidewalk. And I'm thinking, how do they do this? Well, if you get up early enough, you can see. All the little gardeners that are out there are trimming and picking and sweeping and raking. It is absolutely gorgeous. They are keeping and tilling and taking care of the hotel grounds. So one day we decided we'd go down to the public beach, not private, public beach, and, and we'd see the real natural raw Hawaii. Whew. Trashed, trash all over the ground, palm tree limbs falling on the sand, nobody picked them up, dead fish, logs washed in, it wasn't beautiful at all. I guess if you like a raw, natural beauty like that. But it wasn't pretty like the hotel grounds. Why? Nobody was taking care of it. It was, it was belonged to the state of Hawaii. It's public. Hmm. Are you all still here? Yes, sir. God said it's not about getting back what the devil stole. It's about ownership. It's about God's ownership of the earth and our ruling and reigning with Him. Huh. Okay, let me move on. I've got some more statements that I want to read to you here. I think you'll be blessed by them. I was blessed this afternoon just by reading over them again. Okay. The law of empowerment, ownership. A ownership spirit produces a greater spiritual passion, anointing, mission, and reward. Now, as m many of you know that uh, Jeannie and I founded and built Agape Church in 19... I guess we probably started building in 82. We started, our, uh, we started the church in 79 at the shopping center out on Barrow Road, but we built the present facility that is there now in 82, something like that. And that was quite a challenge, especially building it by faith and paying for it as we went. But there was a, a great sense of ownership. We knew we were obeying God. There was an assignment there given to us. Uh, we were a spiritual production center to produce life, city, state, nation, world. And I took personal uh, interest and in care. Jeannie did all the, <laughs> the hard stuff. She paid all the subcontractors. And that was a miracle because there was no money to pay them. And I was glad they went to her office instead of mine. She, she did good. She came in there and told me, said, well, I just uh, told the uh, people that were going to provide the air conditioning that we'd pay them uh, 90000 this month and 90000 this month. I said, what did you tell them that for? <laughs> she says, because we will. Okay. Amen. I agree with you. But 
I really took pleasure in what we were building because we were building it for the Lord Amen. and the body of Christ was engaged. Yes. We asked everybody to give $1,000, believe God for $1,000. And back in 1980, that was hard because, you know, uh, there was one man I found out got a paper route. And he threw his paper out every morning before he went to work at his real job. Uh, I guess that's a real job, but he went to another job. And he got his $1,000 by throwing papers. Another couple, they painted their neighbor's house during the summer. They got $1,000 for painting it. Everybody did something. <laughs> Re, good night. Bless her heart. I wish she was here tonight. She really helped me. She came down one Sunday morning. She was dragging a pillowcase. And the ushers had to help her get it. It was full of money, coins. And she came up to the front. She said, Pastor, I've got a word for the congregation. Yes, ma'am. There was over $600 worth of coins in that pillowcase. And she said, Lord, where am I going to get my $1,000? She said, you've been taking change out of your husband's pants pocket for years. <laughs> Go get it. She did, and she pulled it down the aisle. And she said, the Lord showed me something. Can I tell the congregation? I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> have at it. She said, there's, the Lord told me that there's... Uh, three different categories of people in this church and I want one person out of each group to come up and represent. I said, okay. She said, uh, I want the first group, uh, these people are poverty level. They don't have $1,000. They can't give $1,000 and I want somebody to come up and represent them. I thought, oh my Lord. I turned my head. I didn't want to see. <laughs> somebody came up and stood right there. She said, now there's another group of people, medium income, said, and uh, you're, you know, you can give $1,000. And she said, I want somebody to come up and represent them. So somebody came up and represented them right here in the middle. She said, now there's a third group. And there are those of you in this church that have not only $1,000, but thousands of dollars. And you can give $1,000, and it, it, it won't make any difference in your level of living at all. So one guy got up, and he came down and stood here. She said, now here's what the Lord showed me. She went over here to the person representing the poverty group, and she said, you people have wanted these people to build your church for you, and they're not going to do it. Whew. <laughs> I said, Lord, I'm sure glad you told her that. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. But she was right on. And I, I thought, you know, isn't, isn't that the way? I mean, that's how the government thinks. You know, yeah. we're going we're gonna to take from the rich and give to the poor. But you ain't going to change their poor. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So you've got to teach them prosperity, Amen. rules of prosperity. You've got to teach them ownership. Amen. I remember when I owned my first car. Turned 15, 16 years old. And up until that time, my daddy had been training me and teaching me how to drive. And my daddy said, if you'll work hard all summer long, um, and, and we'll take what you make, and I'll match it, and we'll go buy you a car. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> to a teenager. Now, you could drive with a learner's permit with, your, with an adult at 15, but you had to be 16 to get a full driver's license. So I worked hard all summer long. I had $250. 
And so I brought it home. I said, Daddy, I've made 250. And I worked in a lumber yard. Hot, sweaty work. I mean, it was hard. Three months during the summer. I brought my $250. He said, very good. He said, I found just the car. $500. Now, this was in the, <laughs> this was in the 50s. <laughs> he said, I found the perfect car for you. $500. He said, I'll, I'll pay half, you pay half. I said, okay, where is it? He said, I'm going to drive it home tonight. He drove it home. It was the ugliest <laughs> car I've ever seen in my life. And it, was, it, it wasn't army green, and it wasn't forest green. It, it looked like, uh, who, who's the race car driver? Petty, Petty. The way they got that color is they just took all the cans of paint they had in the garage and they mixed them all together. It was a 1943 Studebaker. Now, some of y'all don't know what a Studebaker is because they don't make them anymore. In fact, they quit making them in the 50s. <laughs> they made them in the 40s. But it, it, the, the fun thing about the, the Studebaker is that the, the joke was you can't tell whether it's coming or going because <laughs> the front of it looked just like the back of it. The back of it looked like the front of it. But it had... It had a, a limousine-type doors. The doors opened like this. Had naugahyde carpet in it. It had belonged to a little old lady school teacher who only drove it to school and church on Sunday. It had a hill holder. You know what a hill holder is? It was stick shift, of course, and you, you pull up to a hill, and, you know, you got to manipulate that clutch and brake. If gas just right or you'll roll back. You push the hill holder like an emergency brake. And you put it in gear, and then when... You got ready to go. You put it in gear. When you let off the clutch, the brake released, and you it was all like automatic transmission without automatic transmission. But I tell you what, I was so proud of that car. I polished it. I shined it. I didn't do that to my dad's car, but I did it to my car because I owned the car. And I was looking so forward to taking it uh, on my first date. This girl I had... A crush on in high school and I told her I was going to pick her up and we're going to the movies. Now I know I'm off my subject here but you'll get the idea. Uh, so I didn't have my complete driver's license yet. I had to have an adult ride in the car with me. So daddy said well I'll, I'll, I'll ride in the back seat. He, he's in the back seat. I drove over to her house went up and knocked on the door now, in those days, ladies and gentlemen, you opened the door for your girlfriend. You helped her and you opened the door to the car. You, you were a gentleman. At least that's the way we were taught. So I went up, knocked the door. She came. I went over to the passenger side, opened the door, and she got in. First thing she did was look. My dad's in the back seat. She didn't say anything. Drove to the movie theater. Stopped the car, got out, <clears throat> went over to the passenger side, got her, went up to the ticket counter. My dad gets out of the back seat, gets in the driver's seat, and he drives the car home. He said, now you call me when you're ready to come home, and I'll bring the car, and you can drive her home. Okay. So we got out of the movie. I called him. You had a, you had a pay phone in the movie theater. You know, you know what that is, a pay phone? <laughs> I called him. He brought the car up. 
I took her out, put her in the passenger side. I got in the driver's side, and he gets in the back seat. Drove her home, took her up to the door, told her good night, get back in the car, and drove it home. And then my dad's in the back seat all the time. I took better care of that car. Now, my dad, he took care of his cars, too. When he died, his wife, my mother had died years before, and she, he had remarried. His wife sent me, she found a list of all the cars that he had ever owned back into the 30s. And he raided every one of them. Sorry car. Good car. <laughs> Wonderful car. Cheap car. He took good care. He liked cars. He bought one of the first Corvettes that were ever manufactured. What was that? Uh, 54, 53, 54. I think it was 54. 1954 Corvette. Uh, he paid uh, uh, $750 for it. Brand new. He liked cars. And he taught me to take care of what you own. If you don't take care of what you own, how do you expect to get how do you expect God to bless you? Amen. And I started on that rabbit trail because I remember I would drive on the campus every Sunday. Every, You know, I pastored that church for 35 years. I pastored another church for two years, so a total of 37 years pastoral work. And every time I drive on the campus and I preached twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday, I missed two Sundays a year. I preached 50 weeks out of every year, three times a week, plus all the special conferences. And then the Bible school, we started that. Every and I'd drive on the campus, and I'd see a porch light burn out. I'd see, you know, a shrub dying. I'd see whatever. And I would turn to my wife, and I said, honey, I can see the porch lights burn out. I can see the shrubs did. Why can't they see it? They didn't take ownership of it like I did. Now, it wasn't mine. It, you know, no, nobody owns a, a 501c3 code organization. You can't own a church or you can't own the property. It belongs to the church. It's incorporated. But I took ownership of it. Amen. 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 T t it was my responsibility. And, you know, if you're not cautious, you can let that drive you crazy. And you can become uh, an unbearable boss or landlord. Nobody wants to be around you. But, you know, when you walk into somebody's office. We had, <laughs> we had one girl. We had to have a I think maybe I asked Jeannie or somebody to have a little talk with her. She made her office like her bedroom. It looked like Grandma Thickethal's house. I mean, it was, <laughs> if you never heard that expression. And I, and I had to tell them, you know, this is not your bedroom. This is not your house. This is your office. And we have people that come in here and we need you to, to look like that. Well, let's see. Let's move on now. <laughs> Owners think differently than servants. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 
And you may have to think like an owner before you become one. You may never become an owner until you think like one. Greater productivity is required from owners. And I'll make one more statement and then we'll, we'll close. Um, many of you know my testimony. I used, to, I used to be in the liquor business before I got saved. And I called on all the bars, packet stores, lounges, hotels in Pulaski County. And there was one particular uh, liquor store off the freeway now. Uh, not sure I remember the name of it. It might. It was uh, uh, 15th Street in North Little Rock. Big chain liquor, something like that. And the, the owner of it had a sign on the side of the cash register. And it, it said, and I used to read it when I'd go in there. Now, I wasn't saved. I wasn't a Christian, but it imprinted me. He said, <clears throat> if you work faithfully eight hours a day, you can become boss. And then you can work 18 hours a day. <laughs> so you have to be prepared. A greater productivity is required from owners. Now, let me close with this. Do you take ownership of the house vision of your church? If no, why not? If yes, why? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. 18. I used to lick, put my uh, finger on my tongue and wet my, to turn the pages until someday, <clears throat> this was a couple of years ago when the pandemic was going real big and, and there was a lady that sent me an envelope and uh, she sent me one of these little tins of sticky stuff like you, you know, you stick your finger in it to turn the pages. She said, I've noticed you lick your fingers to turn the pages. He said, you might contaminate yourself. Start using this instead. <laughs> so I do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. Now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it pleased Him. If this is your body, if this is your church, God sets you here. It pleased Him to set you here. It's hard to, to make every church member in every church in the world pleased because there's no perfect church. There's no perfect pastor. There's no. I had a lady tell me one time, she said, Pastor, said uh, I used to have you on a pedestal, but you fell off. <laughs> I said, I don't even want to know why, but you shouldn't have had me up there in the first place. <laughs> so God's church as it pleased Him. Mm -hmm. um, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, Christ's body, according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now go over to 1 Corinthians 13, 15. I guess I should have read that one first. 1 Corinthians 13, 15. <clears throat> no, that's not right. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. 1 Corinthians 3, 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work what sort of it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So whatever you're assigned to do, whatever you are a part of, then you're going to be rewarded or suffer loss of reward for what you do in the body. Amen. You know, that really makes ownership take on a seriousness. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Did you take ownership of what God gave you? Um, and and I'll, I'll stop there. We'll, we'll stop there. Let me move my marker so I'll know. I don't know that we'll start the same place next time. I, I am going to be back twice this month. I'll be back the end of the month. 29th, I think it is. <clears throat> um, when man loses his authority, his ownership mentality, nature resists him. Now, this is what happened to Adam. He cannot master the material world. He cannot command nature. Frost and snow is greater than he. Wild beasts defy him. Insects destroy his crops. Disease and death triumph over him. He cannot rule his own spirit, much less a spiritual world. Man was created for divine destiny, high place in divine regard. He's capable of endless progress, thus no more limits. Jesus becomes our divine means for enabling man to realize his destiny. He takes upon himself human nature, he tastes death for every man. Through death, he's raised to supreme authority. This is Jesus. He's exalted to supreme authority, the head of humanity. Through him, man regains his authority. Through Christ. We can do all things through Christ. Paul said, be therefore imitators of God as dear children. Real quickly, the meek shall inherit the earth. Meek, mild, humble, gentle in spirit. The meek person is not given to retaliation, but forgiveness. A meek person takes insults calmly. <laughs> uh, the meek person will not link or think of himself more highly than he should. He will not allow his temper to be ruffled. He will do his duty in the station where God put him. Not ambitious, 
but be pleasing to God. The meekness is a grace. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Meekness, not weakness, may outwardly resemble its natural counterfeit. Timidity, shyness, weakness of character. True meekness is a strength. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit, which gives strength and character, self-control. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek. Why? Because they will inherit the earth. Justice is a power. It always overcomes the tough and rough and violent. It has a joy, contentment. What was unattainable by the law and the prophets will be obtainable through grace. The earth will not inherit will be inherited by him whose conquest will not be by might nor by power, but by the spirit of meekness. The answer to the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to move my marker because I'm going to start in a different place next week. So, we get up for the judgment seat of Christ. And nobody really knows what that's going to look like. Uh, we just know that it's a reality, but I like to say it this way. Let's assume that it's like this, and you're going to come up. And Jesus is going to be standing here. He's going to give you rewards for whether you took ownership of what God called you to do. What you want to hear is, well done, yes, sir. good and faithful servant. What you don't want to hear is, well Did y'all get anything out of this tonight? Yes, sir. All right. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Pastor Philip, would you come and do whatever? Amen. Hallelujah. We're not going to take.